0: It's fascinating to think that the Nutcracker in this company, and in most companies, essentially is half the ticket revenue for the year. And this is all fairly new. This is not something that's been going on for a jillion years. It really goes back only to the 50s when Nutcracker first appeared on TV. And all of a sudden, companies, as they came up, realized this could be a moneymaker, and it is. But the rest of the season... What do you do? Do you do Swan Lake or do you do some extremely cutting-edge modern stuff? And you have issues of what's best for the dancers, what's best for the audience, and ultimately what's best for the bottom line. And it all has to be kind of averaged in and figured within a budget so that you're not losing money, or at least you're not losing a lot of money at the end of the year. It's also true that a significant portion of ballet companies' revenues are from donations. I mean, you don't make it up at the box office ever.
1: That was Stephen Manis talking about Seattle's Pacific Northwest Ballet. He's the author of the book, Where Snowflakes Dance and Swear Inside the Land of Ballet. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Although Stephen Manis has written more than 30 books and hundreds of articles, on the face of it, he's not the most likely choice to write a book about the inner workings of a ballet company. He's a techie guy. He's the author of a biography of Bill Gates and writes about personal technology for publications like the New York Times, Forbes, and PC World. He's even one of the creators and co-hosts of the weekly public television series, Digital Duo. But Manus was getting tired of the technology beat. He also loves the ballet and has been a supporter of Seattle's Pacific Northwest Ballet, or PNB, for over 20 years. A backstage tour for donors gave him a hint of all of the unseen work necessary to make ballet unfold so effortlessly on stage. And Stephen Mannis knew what his next project would be. He would take his love of dance, his outsider's curiosity, and his observant eye and document how the art of ballet actually works. Stephen Manis remembers the backstage tour that started it all.
0: The ballet here had a tour for donors, a backstage tour. And you know, you got to go in the orchestra pit and the conductor was very articulate about how different it is conducting for ballet than just for a symphony. They showed us the shoe bins and explained that there's a $200,000 annual budget just for shoes. We got to see the laundry. You don't think about it, but between shows, they got to do laundry. We got to see the workings of the sets and the uh, lighting. And I thought, geez, this is really fascinating. We think we have an idea about ballet. And it turns out there are, as there are with most arts, a million decisions that go into it. Uh, With ballet, it's particularly difficult because there's so many moving parts, including people. That have to be accommodated and you've got so many trade-offs between money and art between time and art between people's personal goals and the best thing for the art and the company and it was absolutely fascinating to find all this stuff out
1: you were given what seems to be almost unlimited access to PNB Pacific Northwest Ballet and to rehearsals to meetings backstage how did that happen
0: I think my access was a tribute to the guts and the confidence of the artistic director, Peter Boll, and the executive director, D. David Brown. I think they thought they didn't have anything to hide, and there's an upside to showing people what's really in ballet. And I have never seen such uh, enthusiasm and generosity toward me.
1: You know, it's interesting because the mantra of our chairman, Rocco Landisman, is that art works. And he looks at this in three ways. There are art works, as in works of art. There's art works in the way art works on us um, psychologically and emotionally and intellectually. But there's also art works, as in art Is working (laughs) and I was very struck early on in your book one of the things that annoys most dancers is that people don't consider what they do a real job
0: yeah if you ask any professional dancer what they absolutely think people don't get about what they do is that it is a job and here and in a lot of companies it's a union job which is absolutely unusual as unions effect has been uh, diminished over the years in the American workplace. In fact, what's truly bizarre is if you're sitting in the audience, everybody in front of you is a union worker, not just the dancers, but also the stagehands, the uh, musicians, and the dressers even have their own union. The only non-union person you will see is the conductor because he's considered management. But yeah, it's, it is is absolutely a job. They get paid. They have a union pay scale. They have a union that tells exactly when they're going to get a break, which is every hour for five minutes, and they need that break. They have union rules about the temperature in the studio because they don't like to be too cold. They have union rules about the floor quality because they don't want to get hurt. And the union hours in Seattle are basically 12 to 7 with a three o'clock lunch break, so it's kind of odd. They're almost on a different time zone from the rest of the world. Every day in the morning, this is before their union hours, they're in to stretch probably around 9 a.m., and then there's a class that runs from about 10.15 to quarter to 12. The um, class, though it's non-mandatory, everybody does, and it's done in ballet companies throughout the world. In French, it's known as the class de perfection. It's to help perfect your work. They get a 15 minute break after that class. The time they put in, I mean, their day is 12 hours.
1: Rehearsal time, the competing interest, what you say, the daily schedule, everything is, is done according to the daily schedule. And the competition for time and space is really quite extraordinary.
0: Yes, the choreographers and stagers or repetiteurs, as they're known in French, are always looking to get the maximum time to set their work because the more time you have the better it's going to look in the end. The problem is several works are being set at once. There are at least three studios in operation at any given time. Sometimes for a big work it'll all be for one piece, sometimes for other works it'll be three different things going on at the same time and the dancers are slaves to a very complicated schedule that's made up by one of the ballet masters every day and they may be in a studio at noon for an hour on a very modern piece and then they'll go to the next door studio and work on a classical piece and then they may go to a third studio and work on a balancing piece that has a completely different style from the other two and meanwhile, the stagers and the choreographers are desperately trying to maximize their number of hours with the dancers. Sometimes they get them, sometimes they don't. There are uh, priorities and there are issues of just a dancer can't be in two places at once. So he may be cast in two different dances and not be able to rehearse both of them at the moment the stagers is available. It's a dance of its own.
1: Stephen, explain how ballet is transmitted from one generation to another. Assuming a choreographer is dead, how does that work get done?
0: How does that work get done? Well, it gets done by people known as stagers. And the stagers come in, and they're basically the representative of the choreographer, maybe a living choreographer, too. And they have learned the work in some way, usually from being in it, but sometimes they've learned it from tape. And they're charged with setting the work on the dancers. It's fascinating to see how different the stagers are and to see their levels of knowledge and to see what they get. Now what happens sometimes if you have a living choreographer is the choreographer will come in at the end and clean things up. So a work that looks maybe C minus, C plus on Monday before the work is going to be performed on say Thursday out here, then, suddenly becomes when the choreographer comes in, a-plus because the choreographer knows all the intention. He knows the missing steps, he knows the stuff the stagers missed in the uh, presentation, he knows the motivations. But a lot of times the choreographer doesn't come in and you get whatever the stagers idea was and interestingly the stagers have different ideas. For example, I was in the room with a balancing piece, Prodigal Son was being staged and Peter Bowl, who has danced that many times in the title role, had one view of what the siren which is a wonderfully sexy and dark role should be doing and Elaine Bauer who had danced it at Boston Ballet had a different view and part of it is because they were taught differently so you have the case of ballet being handed down not from a score because there usually isn't one but either by tape and mostly by body to body and people had learned it and they learned it different ways. In the case of Bowl, you have a person who learned it from Edward Vallella and Jerome Robbins who learned it from Balanchine. For the next generation, it'll be one generation beyond, and it'll change.
1: The other thing that's fairly phenomenal is that dancers often work when they're hurt. And unlike athletes who can be on the field and spit and grimace, they have to look light and ethereal, even if they're on dancing on broken bones.
0: It's absolutely true, and the physical therapist for the company said, and he had been a sports physical therapist for years, these guys are the toughest people I know, because A, they have to smile when they're hurting, and B, they're hurting all the time. I mean, I asked him that. I said, how often do these guys play hurt? And the answer was, all the time. There's always something. There's a foot thing, there's a back thing, there's an ankle thing, there's a knee thing. There's always something going on. It is extremely stressful, and part of the reason, as he points out, is the shoes don't help. The men have basically slippers with no support at all. The women have point shoes, which are basically cardboard, satin, and glue that don't help much either. So they're doing this stuff in shoes that are basically two centuries old
1: well let's talk about the shoes as you pointed out the budget is what two hundred thousand dollars
0: about two hundred thousand dollars a year for point shoes yeah
1: how many shoes does the company go through or how many shoes would an average dancer go through
0: I think dancers go through literally a hundred or more in a year and it depends on the production some productions the year I was there for example a few of the dances were done barefoot or in slippers more modern stuff So you luck out there, but then for something like Swan Lake, apparently if you're getting a shoe to last one performance, you're in luck. That just beats up the shoe. In some cases, you don't even make it all the way through a performance. Plus, you've got all the rehearsals, you've got company class, which is done in shoes, usually broken in ones or ones that aren't quite in as good a shape as uh, what you'd use for a performance but it's absolutely a huge budget thing.
1: I'm fascinated about the little cottage industry of shoemakers. That seems to be a society unto themselves, and, and a, quite a secret one.
0: The Seattle company uses primarily Freed's, and Freed is just its own little Byzantine world, and I'd love to go and see what it's all about, but the, each maker has a maker's mark A star there's a maker crown there's maker squiggle and apparently each maker makes a very different shoe so you will order maker such-and-such and then you will get it customized with a high vamp a low vamp a rise in the back you get them customized but the same specification from two different makers will come out with a very different shoe there are others, there are more modern shoes. Nobody in our company happens to use them, but it's a fascinating world of its own that I didn't get a chance to get into as deeply as I'd have liked.
1: It's fascinating to learn how many people are involved behind the scenes for any ballet. So you're looking at the stage, and even if it's a, a little pas de deux, how much goes into that between the shoes and the costumes and the lighting and the sets
0: it's absolutely amazing how many people are involved in any given moment. If You've got the orchestra there, you've got the conductor there, you've got the dressers, the stagehands, and a lot of them. And people don't even think about this, but you've got the in-house people, you've got the ushers, you've got the people who sell tickets, you've got people who don't get their work on that night but actually are essential for example a music librarian somebody has to get the rights to the music you can't just play it you have to negotiate for that the person who negotiates with the choreographer you've got choreographic rights you've got lighting rights believe it or not and costuming rights if the costumes exist earlier you've got to go get the rights to use them then you may have to make them for example, uh, some companies do rent costumes and sets and others don't. New York City Ballet does not. So if you're going to do a performance of something that was first done at New York City Ballet and somebody hasn't done it in between, you're probably going to have to make the costumes and sets, which PNB does. They have a huge costume shop, they have a huge set shop, and you have people fitting the costumes to the dancers, which is another skill that's just amazing. So there's a huge phalanx of people behind the scenes that nobody sees and nobody even knows exists and yet they're essential to the work
1: you know it strikes me that here you have a company that they're together every day for long periods of time so obviously friendships form but they're also competing for the same roles and I think that would make for very complicated relationships
0: it is a very complicated world in that regard you have People coming up, and you also have ranks, so you have the principals, you have the soloists, you have the core, you have the apprentices, and everybody wants to move up to be a principal. Not everybody's going to get to do that. So you have competition, but you also have this sense of a team. I liken it to baseball. It's very similar in a lot of ways that people don't think about. You, know, you have a team that works together every single day. I mean, In an opera you don't have that. In an opera you have people flying in and then they fly out again but the cast may not see each other for another five years. In ballet they're there every day. In ballet also the career path is similar. You know you have people starting out when they're 18 or even younger and then they're done when they hit their 40s. It's very rare to see a baseball player or a dancer who's over say 45 years old, and even that's kind of cutting it. And because you're working in a team, you have to work out ways of dealing with this. There are going to be moments of competition. And so you really have these delicate issues of how to treat each other and how to um, behave on your own. And I think because of that team quality, there is this generosity that I mentioned. There's, there's a generosity in just transmitting what you know to somebody else. I saw it again and again where dancers would help out other dancers. They'd be, A principal would have been in the work before. Some other principal hadn't. And they'd do a lot of the helping on teaching what needed to be done and then transmitting it to younger dancers. The principals would show core dancers what needed to be done. We had dancers come in from New York City Ballet, which does a very different nutcracker for the one we do. And the dancers here were eager to help them learn the role that they needed to re- learn. So I think the team aspect means you can't be a diva as easily. You just, you really have to be there every day and cooperate.
1: There's also a lot of work with the younger generation. There's a dance school associated with PNB.
0: PNB has a. Uh, very well-regarded dance school. The older students, known as professional division students, often dance with the company because the company sometimes isn't big enough to uh, provide the cast that you need, particularly Nutcracker, but also in some of the other big ballets. It's a completely different kind of schooling than you see elsewhere and I was struck by the complete lack of condescension from the teachers to the students. You're just there to do your thing and we're there to help you and teach you and, but you're little professionals and the teachers have so much sort of reserve authority because they've all been dancers, they've all been there, they've been in the room doing the exact same things, but they also have had professional careers usually and the amount of respect they get from that is pretty amazing I've never seen a room where eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds are totally silent for an hour. It's just how it is. You don't talk in the ballet class. And and the authority the teachers have is phenomenal. And the generosity. I mean, I saw again and again, I saw principal dancers from the company teach young students uh, presentation pieces. They took their lunch hours to go out and teach. Didn't have to. They weren't getting paid for it. They just did. I saw a dancer who had come in from New York, helped teach the professional level, students, a work that he'd been in in New York that they'd never seen, a very difficult balancing piece that they were doing for their uh, final performance. So it happens again and again, and there's a lot of interaction between the company and the students. It's interesting, that particular building and the building PNB has, there are open studios. The hallway, the main hallway where parents sit, where kids sit, waiting to go into the next studio is visible to the studios and vice versa so you can watch if you're in the building you can basically watch almost any rehearsal just by sitting in the hallway so the kids see these role models day after day they come in at four and the dancers are still working till seven so they have a tremendous role model just behind a sheet of glass
1: tell us about Dance Chance
0: Dance Chance is a program in Seattle there are similar programs elsewhere but essentially The idea is to find underprivileged kids, mostly, who might have a shot at being pretty good dancers. And it's done with a subtly strict audition. Basically, teachers from the school go into an elementary school and look at kids in the third or fourth grade and put them through a basic audition, though they don't know it. And what they're looking for is body type and flexibility and coordination and so the body type stuff you can usually see pretty quickly the flexibility you see because they give special exercises for the kids to see how much they can stretch and the coordination comes when they ask the kids to skip across the room to music and you watch and in a given room probably half the kids are already gone for body type another few will be gone for lack of flexibility and then they'll go to coordination and they'll be hoping that a particular kid is terrific and all of a sudden she basically has two left feet and she's out too so in a class of say 2025 if they're lucky they'll find one or two to come to dance chance then the kids will be given regular dance classes ballet 101 and see how they do and if they're any good they'll be invited back a couple of the kids and Including one who was brought into the company the year I was there have made it into major dance companies including PNB. It's not the goal really. The goal is to teach kids some dance and one of the things the parents find out is that dance education is really good for focus. The dance students and dancers have extraordinary focus and typically the um, Younger dancers are extremely good at managing time because they've got to be. If they're going to get their homework done and spend what can be three hours in the dance studio every day, they've got to figure out a way to do it. And they do. They're usually at the top of their classes.
1: Do you see ballet and dancers differently now?
0: Oh, totally. I had no idea what this took. I've never seen a group of people who have so much ability to focus. I have sat there and been behind, say, a uh, flat panel TV in a studio while the dancers were watching to see what their part was going to entail. And just the sheer intensity of gaze, they absolutely want to catch this. And what's amazing is they can catch it, despite the fact the person they're going to be playing is maybe two inches tall on the screen, they can understand it and translate it into their bodies and once they do it they remember it it's absolutely amazing and they can remember it for months you can have a dance sort of partially staged and because the stager's not available she'll have to come back and she'll come back and the dancers remember everything they got before it's absolutely extraordinary the amount of work they put in the amount of time they put in i mean their day is easily 12 hours and the amount of intensity they managed to keep up is really pretty extraordinary.
1: Stephen Manis, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Stephen Manis. He was talking about his book, Where Snowflakes Dance and Swear, Inside the Land of Ballet. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from March and the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite, performed by the New York Philharmonic, Michael Tilson Thomas Conductor, used courtesy of Sony BMG Music Entertainment. Excerpts from The Overture and the Russian Dance, from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite, performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra, Leopold Stokowski Conductor, courtesy of Creative Commons. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, it's a conversation with 2012 jazz master, Jack DeJeanette. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.